Um, so if you are just joining us or you haven't been here for a little bit, we've been in a series uh, called Dear God, in which we've been exploring some topics about uh, faith and theology, some things, uh, matters pertaining to our personal faith, and also some questions that we've had uh, theologically. And in the past few weeks, we've been talking about some uh, kind of theological distinctives about our church. You know, we've uh, we talked about kind of what it means to be complementarian and why we are that way and um, our views on kind of miraculous gifts. Last week, we had a baptism service, which was kind of interesting. We <laughs> ended up baptizing our entire building uh, in many ways. And so that was probably one of the most exciting <laughs> baptism Sundays I've been a part of. But, um, you know, actually today, initially what I wanted to talk about was I wanted us to talk about social justice, which is an incredibly kind of, I guess, relevant topic, particularly recently, if you think about the things that are happening in our country, like there's a there's a border crisis, you know, there's a lot of talk about immigration and, you know, what's happening, people are getting letters. I mean, I was reading something in the news the other day that, you know, the government is starting to go into churches and other kind of religious centers that offer sanctuary to uh, refugees or people, uh, basically undocumented um, immigrants to help them. And a lot of those people now, uh, typically there's been a policy to kind of not go into these these types of places like worship centers or religious, you know, places of worship. And um, now it seems like even that policy is kind of being overturned. It was never something like set in stone, but it was just something that uh, had kind of been observed. And, you know, this is something obviously that's a very, very relevant kind of in our society. Uh, racial tensions feel high as they have been since, you know, Donald Trump was elected president. There's a housing crisis in California. I don't know if you guys know that, but, um, there is kind of a lot of stuff going on that pertains to it. When the Bible talks about this, really this idea of social justice, there are four typical kind of groups of people that are addressed. It's orphans, widows, the poor, and refugees. And so, you know, I was thinking about that and kind of working through a message about social justice and how to step into it. But I was kind of led back away from that to this idea of what is likely more relevant for us rather than to think about the big idea, the, the kind of big picture idea of social justice, to think about the idea of what it means to love your neighbor. And so we'll, we'll kind of talk about how all those things work together because uh, we're going to be looking at gospel neighboring in the book of Luke, uh, Luke 10 and you know, why don't we actually, why don't we turn there? Let's, let's turn to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to start at verse 25. Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 25. We'll read all the way through 37, but we'll take it piece by piece. 
Luke ten twenty five. This is God's word, and it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Okay, let's stop right there for a second. We're going to see kind of four things here in this passage about gospel neighboring, um, just so you can follow. The first thing is the mandate. The second is the minimum. The third is the motivation. And then finally, we'll talk about the method. Okay, so the first thing, the mandate. And I'll just give you the mandate here. Love God with everything and also love your neighbor. That's essentially the the main command that's given here uh, in this passage. And when we look at it, there's this lawyer who's talking to Jesus and you know, when it says a lawyer, it's not like a lawyer as, as we would think about a lawyer. <laughs> I thought about Jacob and Marnie for some reason. But, um, you know, it wouldn't be like just a lo- an expert in civil law. That's what we think of when we think of a lawyer. This would have been an, a religious scholar, so an expert in biblical law. And so he sees that it seems that this lawyer is motivated by having a certain opinion of Jesus. Jesus is always welcoming of people that disobey the law, these quote-unquote sinners, right? And so Jesus, uh, uh, this lawyer sees that this kind of sinner class of people, whether because they are marked by either particular sins or by disease, which would also be a sign of sin at this time, or by some kind of irreputable profession because they have some, you know, sinful job, this lawyer sees that Jesus is very welcoming of these people. And so he's expecting Jesus when he asks this question of kind of, you know, about eternal life, right? When he asks this question, he expects Jesus to essentially say, you don't have to do anything, right? Or it doesn't matter what you do. That, that's, it doesn't really matter how you live. God just accepts everyone. That's the answer that this lawyer is expecting from Jesus. Now, that's not the answer that he gets. He's, he's trying to set a trap for Jesus, but of course, you know, traps don't work very well on Jesus. Jesus responds with uh, one of his typical responses, which is, what do you think? Right? So this guy says, you know, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Because he knows that this guy is an expert in the law. Now, the only way to answer that question, what's written in the law, is either to say all the 700, you know, plus rules of the law or to give a summary. And so he gives a summary. He says, well, the entire law can be summarized in this way. Love the Lord your God with all of your being, essentially, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This really is in, written in the law, Leviticus 19. But he's giving this summary. Now, that's the main kind of point, right? That's the main mandate. And Jesus says, hey, like, you're right, basically. He says, that's a, that's a good reading. You know, you've answered correctly. Do this, 
and you'll live. That is, you know, that's the mandate of gospel neighboring, essentially. Love God first with everything that you have, and then also love your neighbor. So real quick, before we even move on, let me just ask you, are you doing that? Do you love God with everything that you have? Do you, you know, do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you pursue God with that kind of passion? In fact, I would even ask you, do you pursue anything with that kind of passion? With all of your heart, with everything that you have, there is a... I was uh, reading an article written by this psychologist who he found that over the past, I think, like 10 plus years, he'd he'd found that he had been doing therapy for a lot of millennials. And he would find that a lot of them have the same basic problem. And the basic problem that they face is that uh, it's something called decision fatigue. Right, is that they have too many choices. So this is a real thing. And apparently, this is one of the things that millennials struggle with the most. It's that we have too many choices. And we can't... It, it actually uh, kind of messes us up. It messes up how, what we think about our lives. When you get to a certain point in your life and you're thinking about, what should I do with my life? You start to be ruined because there are there are too many things you can do with your life. And then... People end up having this issue of, you know, passion. I was having a conversation with, like, a couple pastor friends of mine, and one of them was, like, he wanted to talk about his passion. And he goes, you know, I hate to be all millennial, but I want to talk about my passion. And I was, like, you know, me and the other guy, we were, like, what are you talking? <laughs> like, why is that Why is that a weird, you know, why is that, like, a bad thing for you to want to talk about that? But it, it appears that, it's become this kind of i don't know it's a, it's a it's a it's a weird thing that we don't want to address and we don't want to think too much about because it makes us actually have regrets about our life or think about things that could have been or should be that are not you know i i have this thing written on my desktop it says just says keep it simple it's supposed to be k i s s uh, which is keep it simple stupid but um, I just have keep it simple. If there is anything that you should pursue with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, every day, pour that into discovering the glory and the grace and the power of God. Right? Only God deserves and merits that kind of attention, and only God can properly reward that kind of pursuit in your life. No other thing. Right? No other person, no other job or challenge, no other thing, period, merits that pursuit, like merits that much of you giving yourself to it, 
nor will it properly reward you giving yourself to it. There are times in our lives, right, where we get so consumed by something that it becomes the most important thing in our lives, and we might pursue it with all of our hearts, but it will end up disappointing us. Only God, this is what is summarized in the entirety of the law, like all 700 rules of the law, of the Mosaic law, only God deserves all of that, that kind of worship, that kind of attention. And the second part of it as it relates to us and one another is simply to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we'll get into this more. But just to put it simply here, we don't need to be taught how to love ourselves. Right? I've never taught... I don't think any parents have ever taught their kids the phrases like mine or like my turn or give me or I want, but somehow they learn it. Like they just learn it on their own and they just learn how to say it and they just do it because we're all born sinners and lovers of self. And just the way in which you love yourself is the way that God calls us to love your neighbor, you know, whoever is around you. But that's it simply, right? Like, that's the mandate. Now, this guy says it correctly, and Jesus says, you said it correctly. Good job. And then he goes on, verse 29, it says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, uh, the lawyer is trying to, he wanted to say something to Jesus, right? He wanted to trap Jesus. He obviously failed. And so the Bible tells us, desiring to justify himself, he says to Jesus, Who's my neighbor, though? And he says, Okay, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he wants to justify himself. So he says, but who's my neighbor? But who counts? Like, who do I have to love? And so what he's, what he's kind of trying to do is to find the limits of the command. He wants to essentially minimize the command. He wants to know what's the minimum. Like, what is the minimum level that I can do and yet still be considered righteous or still be able to inherit eternal life, still be able to be considered a good person, you know, who, what's, the, what's the limit there? So he says, who's my neighbor? Now, Jesus, to answer that question, and he knows the intention of this guy's question, so he actually breaks it down for him. First, the who now, he makes this a story about Jews and Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Uh, second, the when. 
he breaks it down simply by saying, if you have the ability and the opportunity, then you should help, period. And thirdly, the how much, the idea of, okay, well, how much, what's the limit of how much I'm supposed to help? So he tells this story. There's, a, there's an actual road here, a 17-mile road from, you know, Jerusalem to Jericho. This would be a very known road. It was a hilly road. You know, a lot of bandits were there. There was actually a, a certain place known there where people would get robbed. It was called the Pass of Blood. That's how it could literally be translated. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a very nice place. You know, if you were going to visit somewhere like a foreign country, and they're like, you guys want to go to the Pass of Blood? I would be like, probably no. No, that's like, we're fine. Let's not go there. And yet, this, this, so this was a real place, even though this is a, you know, a para, kind of a hypothetical situation or a, kind of an imaginary story. Everyone can relate to these things because they're, they're, they were real facts. And so telling this story and saying, okay, there's this guy left half for dead. And, you know, not only does, not only does the Samaritan essentially go and risk of himself because there's still bandits around, but he bandages him up. He uses oil and wine. He puts him on the animal, right, to ride the animal while he himself walks back, we presume, and then pays for his stay at the inn and then says, anything else? Anything else he needs, just give it to him and I'll pay for that too. That makes it seem like, well, what are the limits? What's the minimum? Well, there, there is no minimum. It makes it seem like the minimum is actually the maximum you could possibly give. There's no limits, right? So when this guy says, God... You know, or not teacher, essentially, that's what he's thinking. But he says, teacher, what's the, what's the, like, what, what do I need to do so that I won't feel guilty anymore? How much is just enough? Jesus' answer is, there's, there's no degree to which you can serve just so that you won't feel guilty. There's no amount that you could give just so that you won't feel guilty. There's no amount of, community service, no amount of volunteering or ministry that you could do. In fact, even if you outserve and outgave everyone, you'd become self-righteous, probably feeling superior, and yet you'd still feel guilty. Are there limits to the amount we can do for our neighbors in love? Of course there are. I mean, we're only human. We can only do so much. What Jesus is going after in this guy is not the fact that there's a limit to what you can do. It's the fact that he is not searching for the limit. He is searching for the minimum. So this points to a fundamental difference between how Jesus sees religion and how this this religious expert sees it. You know, like, do you ever say something to someone and the response doesn't fit, like, the intention that you meant when you, when you were saying it, like, when you were asking it? Like, um, you know, Boomi's on break right now, right? And so uh, a while back, like, my parents were asking me oh, if, they, if, they, if we wanted them to come over to babysit. So I was like, oh, yeah, you know, you guys can come over. 
whatever, this certain day. And I asked Booby, I was like, hey, do you want to, like, go watch a movie next week? Right? And it's like, what I'm saying is, hey, yeah, you know, we could go watch a movie and my parents could come and they could watch the kids. And it's like, it's cool, right? And so I'm asking, I'm like, yeah, do you want to go watch whatever? Like, do you want to go watch Spider-Man or something? And her response was, fine. You know, like, like, all right, I guess. You know, like that, right? And it's like, Wait, do you know what I'm like? Do you know what I'm asking? Like, I'm not asking you to like do me a favor, right? Like, I'm asking you if you want to do something fun and to have our parents come and actually, you know, like help us and give us an opportunity to go out and do something fun. And like, you know, but then, you know, for some reason, when she like heard that, like she thought of it in a different way, right? And it's like sometimes I feel like that. Like, that's the way we think about religion. Like, God is laying out this delicious banquet, you know? Like, that's what, this is what God gives us, what he, with his mandate, right? Like, he gives us the word, and he's saying, like, here, I want to give you all of this, this gift of flourishing. I want you to flourish. I want you to have, like, an amazing life. And we have this this banquet, like all this delicious food just laid out before us. And we're like, okay, fine, God. Like, gosh, I'm going to eat this, gosh. You know, like we're so, uh, well, how much of this do I have to eat? You know, like like how much of this delicious cake do I have to eat? Like how much, God? How much do you want me to? That's, that's, a, that's a minimum understanding, right? Like, God, okay, fine. How much Bible do I have to read? Like, how much prayer do I have to do? How much missions do I have to do? Like, how much loving do I have to do to, like, just, to just satisfy you? As if, like, we're doing God a favor. There are no minimums on the path to eternal life. There's only maximums. Eternal life isn't just about living forever as if it's some, like, holy grail or fountain of youth. You know, I think most books and movies that have covered that idea sufficiently warn us that that would be terrible, right? Like, like living forever in this world would be terrible. If that's what eternal life was, just the fact that you get to live forever, that would be really bad. Uh, the eternal life that God offers is not really about time at all. It's about a different kind of life. It's about a different quality of life that's set apart from the one that the world offers. So when this guy says, like Jesus scoffs at his notion of the minimum, right? He's like, what's the minimum? And Jesus says, oh, you want a minimum? Let me tell you a story about a guy who goes to, like, the most dangerous road there is. It's called the Pass of Blood. And he finds a guy who's beaten naked and bleeding out on the road who's still alive, meaning if he doesn't get help, other guys can come back, and they're miles away from any help, and this guy gives him his own animal and bandages him up and gives him money so he could stay at some place, and then says, I'll pay for anything else that he needs. And he says, that's what it means to be a neighbor. That's the, that's the, that's the minimum. As much as you can is the minimum. Not as much as you want to, not as much as you're comfortable with. You know, as much as you can. Now, surely nobody short of like Mother Teresa can do this, can actually live this way. 
so how the heck you know, are we supposed to actually do that? Well, uh, that brings us to the third point, the motivation. The motivation. Now let's read on here. It says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, a couple things here. That emphasis is mine. That's probably not your Bible. But um, the original question, if you remember, was who's my neighbor, right? Like, like, and who is my, like, who am I supposed to love? But that's not the question that Jesus poses at the end, right? He says, who is the one who proved to be a neighbor? Now, what's interesting here is that, like, the key to this parable is where the lawyer himself is placed inside the story. See, a Jew would never identify himself with a Samaritan. So when Jesus is telling the story, a Jewish man would never think, like, oh, like, would never identify himself. He would never attach himself to the Samaritan in the story. So there is a way that they would think that this parable goes as Jesus is telling it. When he says, okay, first is a priest, right? Then, and, and you know, a priest was essentially God's servant who ministers in the temple, this, this, a, a priest represented the height of piety in, in Jewish culture, right? So when a priest comes by and then doesn't do anything to help this man who's on the side of the road, that's bad, right? It's like out of character, and they think that's bad. So they're like, okay, next guy comes by is a Levite. A Levite is a, a member of the tribe of Levi, but not Aaron's family, like a, a priest's assistant, essentially, okay? So if, like, I'm the priest, then, like, Randy is the, the Levite, right? So then the, the Levite comes, he comes, he doesn't do anything, right? So what they expect is the third guy who comes should be a regular Jewish man. Because if a priest, uh, like, the priest comes and he, for whatever reason, doesn't do anything, and then the Levite comes and for whatever reason, he doesn't do anything. Then the third guy who comes should be a regular Jewish man. And the, the moral of the story would be, you don't need a special call or a title to be a good neighbor, right? The every man can be the hero. Like, that's the moral of the story if the third guy is just a regular Jewish guy. But the third guy is a Samaritan, so what, by the time the third guy enters the story, the lawyer is thinking now, I, where am I in the story, right? Like, who am I supposed to relate to? Because I don't relate to the priest, and I don't relate to the Levite. And I definitely don't relate to the Samaritan. He is like my worst enemy. So there's only one person left to relate to. It's the guy on the road. Because that's what Jesus is saying. At the end when he says, who's the one who proved to be a neighbor? He's saying, who is a neighbor to you? He says, like, do you see, like, this guy comes to Jesus and he says, give me an example. This first century Jew 
comes to Jesus and says, give me an example of gospel neighboring to follow, a model to follow, a hero whose footsteps I can walk in. And Jesus says, okay, let me tell you a story. There's a guy on the side of the road who's alone, beaten, naked, bleeding to death. And there's someone who's coming to save him, and the one coming to save him is his worst enemy. And he says, the one on the side of the road, that's you. The one who is alone, beaten, naked, and bleeding to death. Who's a wreck and hurt, and no one can bear to look at. And the one who comes to save you is the one who should hate you. Like, by all accounts, Jews and Samaritans, you know, they did not like each other, and it was largely because Jews looked down on Samaritans. Because Jews were pure-blooded and Samaritans were of mixed descent, you know, due to different things that happened in the exile and in, you know, when, when the Jews were being conquered and these different things. And so they were considered to be like traitors, And so they were looked down upon heavily by pure-blooded, you know, essentially like Jewish people. This is a very supremacist-like way of thinking. Jesus says, imagine for a moment you're the one bleeding out on the road, jumped, you know, mugged, penniless, no phone, no clothes in the desert, and the one approaching you is your worst enemy. Not your worst enemy, that's probably not the right way to put it, but somebody who justifiably has a reason to not like you. Maybe someone just that you regret that you have hurt. That's the person coming down the road. What would you expect? But what the man receives is not what he expects. He thinks if the Samaritan's the one coming down the road, then he's going to probably leave me there for dead and think better of it. You know, like the world is better for it, but he doesn't. He risks his own life. He bandages him up. He puts him on his animal. He takes him back to the inn. He pays for his stay. And then he says, anything else that's going to, anything else, any other debt that he accrues, it'll go to my account. If it were reversed, if, if Jesus made this hero, if the Samaritan was the one on the road and, and, and the hero was the Jew, then this would be a go and do, do this. You know, be the hero. But the motivation for gospel neighboring is not to be a hero. It's to know how much we have been neighbored by Jesus. That we were the one on the road and he is the one who came to save us. Jesus knew that his own compassion on us wouldn't just risk his life. It would cost him his life, and it did cost him his life. The fact that Jesus died for us when we were naked and broken and his enemy, that's the core of the gospel and its most empowering truth. And it is the way that we can possibly be able to, to love to this capacity. This is a a quote 
the heart of most religions is good advice, good techniques, good programs, good ideas, and good support systems. But the heart of Christianity is good news. It comes not as a task for us to fulfill, a mission for us to accomplish, a game plan for us to follow with the help of life coaches, but as a report that someone else has already fulfilled, accomplished, followed, and achieved everything for us. See, the lawyer came looking for the former, right? He wanted good advice, good techniques, good programs, good ideas, good support systems. He wanted Jesus to prove himself as a teacher by giving him those things. But the heart of Jesus, both his mission and his message, is not that. It is not about what we can accomplish with his good techniques. It's about what he himself has already accomplished on our behalf. So quickly, uh, the method of gospel neighboring. So that was the motivation. The motivation is to know that we have been neighbored, how we have been radically neighbored by Jesus himself. So finally, the method. I'll I'll be quick here. Um, a few things. You know, how can we apply this passage? Uh, first off, be interested to learn your neighbor's celebrations and struggles. Be interested to learn your neighbor's celebration. I'm. I'm Using the term neighbor, I'm going to keep using the term neighbor. That's the term the Bible uses. But um, essentially what I mean by that is like people who are around you, who are close to you. You know, so yeah, it can literally be people like your neighbor, someone who lives by you, or like your coworker, or people who are just in your vicinity, you know, or people at church. Be interested to learn their celebrations and struggles. And you'd be surprised. Like I was having this conversation actually the other day with – um. This guy that I know from, I'm forgetting the restaurant, Fuji Grill. <laughs> Literally, because we go there a lot. And, um, you know, one of the workers, like, I just have, like, talked to him a lot. He was telling me about, how, like, what he's doing on the 4th of July. And he was, like, going to Mexico because he's actually dealing with some of these, like, he's, like, getting his papers in order because he's dealing with some of these like this like immigration stuff, and I'm like, it was it's just crazy. I don't know. Like, and it was very interesting just talking with him and, um, you know, finding out about kind of some of these things and being able to even just like I've had a lot of conversations like that where you're able to just kind of pray for people and share with people, and you know, just be interested in that. Right. It's it seems like not a big like this seems like not a big thing, but it's it's tough for us, you know, it's it's so interesting, even the wording that the Bible uses to love your neighbor as yourself. It's like we are very interested in ourselves, like what we are doing. I think that's one of the you know, it is one of the most meaningful ways that we actually can show love to people around us. Because sometimes we can, like, give them food and not 
really be interested at all in them. And this takes a lot more effort, um, but I think it can be a lot more meaningful. So that's the first thing I'd say. Secondly, step into compassion, trusting it as a way to greater flourishing rather than greater burden. Step into compassion, trusting it as a way to greater flourishing rather than greater burden. I think a lot of times when we think about being compassionate, we don't want to do it because we feel like it's going to be burdensome. You know, like, oh, gosh, now I have to, like, do this or I have to do that. And I know this. I feel this often. But it's wrong. You know, it's just it's just wrong. It's just incorrect. Being able to be compassionate is not does not add. I mean, in a certain sense, of course, it will add some kind of burden, whether that's like a time burden or a financial burden or something. But it does not overall make our life more burdensome. In fact, it leads us to a lot more flourishing and joy and meaning and power and fulfillment. Uh, And finally, this is just the third thing I'd say is um, encourage your neighbors toward the gospel. Of course, at the crux of the story is really not just what we can do, but what Christ has already done. That is the greatest gift we can give to our neighbors, people around us. The key to good neighboring is remembering how we've been neighbored and also to testify to it. You know, let's make the most of the opportunities to share with the people the joy of knowing Christ and commit to doing that together. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much that you have radically neighbored us, God, your people. Uh, We, you know, we acknowledge, God, we were the ones on the road. We were the ones broken and beaten and unable to save ourselves, God. And yet you so graciously and compassionately found us, God. You picked us up. You put us back together, God, and you allow us to be the kind of people that can do the same for others as we lead them towards you. Uh, We pray, God, that you would really place that upon our hearts, that conviction uh, to do everything in our ability as we make make the most of the opportunities, God, that are presented to us. uh, To love like you have loved us, God. Empower us to that end. You know, we really entrust it to you, and we thank you so much, God, and we love you, and in Jesus' name we pray.